Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for those who have braved the cold to come out and that ask you to guide and lead as we look at your word and that you will show us what you would want us to see from these verses. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 23, starting at verse 1. The burden of Tyre, how you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no entering in from the land of Shittim, it is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the isle, you who the merchants of Zidon that pass over the sea have replenished. And by great waters the seed of Sihor, the, the harvest of the river, is her revenue, and she is the mart of nations. Be you ashamed, O Zidon, for the sea hath spoken, even the strength of the sea, saying, I travail not, nor bring forth children, neither do I nourish up young men, nor bring up virgins. As the report concerning Egypt, so shall they be solely pained at the report of Tyre. Pass you over to Tarshish, howl, O you isles. Is this your joyous city, whose iniquity is of ancient days? Her own feet shall carry her afar off to sojourn. Who hath taken counsel against Tyre, and the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traffickers are in, are the honorable of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to stain the pride of all glory, and to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Pass through your lands, O you river, O daughter of Tarshish, there is no more strength. He has laid out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against the merchant city, so destroy the strong thereof. And he said, You shall no more rejoice, O you oppressed virgin, daughter of Zidon. Arise, pass over to Shittim. There also shall you have no rest. All right. We've talked about the city of Tyre when we did the study in Ezekiel, because Ezekiel spoke against Tyre as well. And if you remember in Ezekiel 28, uh, the king of Tyre starts making a curse on the king of Tyre and then transitions into a curse against Satan, uh, which shows you how wicked Tyre was. It was Tyre is on the Mediterranean coast and uh, to the northern part of uh, Israel. And it was, in its day, a great merchant city. And very wealthy. Their people were very wealthy. They thought they had nothing to, to fear. They had a great navy. They were on a peninsula, easily defended by even the weakest army. And they had great pride. And they weren't defeated until many years later. They would had Nebuchadnezzar come in. And Nebuchadnezzar basically took them off the face of the earth. He didn't destroy their city, but uh, he basically made them forgotten for, for many years. They rebuilt the city of Tyre out on an island just outside the peninsula and were so confident in their navy and their, their power that they go, nobody can beat us. And Alexander the Great defeated them because he took all the rocks from the land and created a, a bridge out to Tyre and destroyed Tyre. Uh, and then that was when they were officially totally wiped out. And they are wiped out to this day. There's just flat rocks where their cities were. And so this, as we read it here, is going to be in the future. But as we look at it, it is past, done, and accomplished. So but he says, the burden of Tyre, or the, the oracle, or the, the prophecy of Tyre, says, how you ships of Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is a famous shipping lane as well. We don't know where exactly it's at. 
most people believe that, is, that it is somewhere in Spain. And that's possible, probable. Uh, nowadays, most people don't think of it being there, but, and other people say it was in Cyprus. I think Cyprus was too well known to be Tarshish because we'd have known if there was a city of Tarshish in Cyprus. Uh, I tend to believe that it was probably Spain, mostly because I know back in those days, people were more well-traveled than we tend to think of them. Uh, Solomon traveled all the way to India to get his gold, or sent ships to India to get gold. He didn't, he didn't travel there, and the Israelites didn't travel there, but they hired, hired Navy men to shipping to get them out there to get the gold and bring it back. Uh, so they were very well-traveled. So I do believe Tarshish is somewhere in Spain. Uh, Tarshish is famous because Jonah tried to run there. You know, God said, go to Nineveh. He said, no, I'm going. He said, he was original, go west, young man, go west. <laughs> and God took him back east. Uh, but uh, he says, Tar you know, how are you ships of Tarshish? Because Tarshish was, a, was a part of the naval merchant fleet, and it sailed all over the place, and it sold its goods in Tyre. Almost everything in that day, when Tyre was at its peak, almost everything flowed through Tyre. It's a, a port city. It's always related to fleets. Okay. So nobody really knows much about Tarshish. All we know is that when they mention Tarshish, it's some port or destination ships are coming in and out of. Oh, so it's not a city. Oh. It's not a city we know of its existence yet. So, but if they're talking about Tarshish ships, then they're coming from Tarshish. They're probably coming from Tarshish. Uh, which means there's some city somewhere named Tarshish. And someday some ar archaeologist is going to come across the city of Tarshish and say, we found it. Yeah. Uh, they found some coins in Cyprus that had Tarshish name on them. But most people don't believe that the city is in Tarshish. That was in Cyprus. Uh, but uh, Tarshish did a lot of work. In its day... Tyre was kind of like, for America, New York City, where everything flows through, or on the west coast, San Francisco, where everything came and went for a long time, or better yet, Hong Kong, where, all, where almost all merchandise eventually goes through. That's the kind of place Tyre was. It was the center of merchandise. And, um, and, that's, and God is putting, you know, pronouncing a curse on it. And uh, we see this process here, and he says... Howl, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste. Tarshish is, uh, uh, Tyre is laid waste. There is no house entering in, and the children of Shidnam is revealed unto them. Shidnam is a generalized term for all the islands of the Mediterranean. Uh, so when you see that word in there, they're basically talking about islands. And we've got to keep this in mind. The Jews did not like the ocean and the seas. Uh, they were pretty much landlocked. They had some two, two big lakes and a number of rivers, but they were not a seafaring people. Uh, when Solomon wanted to have a navy, he had to hire people from other nations to teach his people how to be navy, and they never did like the water. And when usually in the scriptures, when you read about the sea, it's very negative. The sea is taking lives. The sea is hurting people. The the sea is tumultuous. They look almost to the sea as if it was hell uh, type, type mentality. And it says, you know, 
the city of Tyre has been laid waste. And this is going to have happened when Alexander the Great comes. He's going to lay the city completely to waste. And it's really bad because Alexander the Great gave him every opportunity to surrender. But they were so confident that he couldn't get his army out there to their city that they refused him. And their navy was strong. They had a very strong navy, merchant fleet, and Alexander the Great beat their navy too. So it was a pretty big deal for them, but they were they rejected every offer to surrender. Uh, verse 2, be still, you inhabitants of the isle, you whom the merchants of Zidon that pass over the sea have replenished. And Zidon is just to the north of, of Tyre, about 50 miles or so. And these two cities are named together frequently. Zidon was a great uh, city as well. Tyre was a great city. And it says, you inhabitants of the isles, be still. You know, quit, quit wailing, you inhabitants of the isles. Yeah, be quiet. And you merchants of Zidon that pass over the sea have replenished. You know, they went, the merchants would go over and fill up their ships and come back to sell. The only problem is Tyre no longer is there. So where are you going to take your merchandise? Uh, your, your, your destination. And this was a big deal for these merchants. They had to have a place to sell, and when you went out to buy things, you had in mind what would sell in the location that you were going to. And that's still done today. You know, we pretty much, you're not going to buy, you know, you know, stuff that's not going to sell in the neighborhood that you're in. Uh, you're probably not going to sell parkas here in Arizona, very much of them. Yeah, there's probably some people who would, except for the last week, yes. Uh, but for the most part, you don't sell parkas in Arizona, especially in the middle of summer, and you're not going to sell, sell swimsuits in Wisconsin in the middle of winter. Uh, yeah, you might have a few people who are getting pre proactive for the summer, but for the most part, you're not. So this is these people were buying things they planned to sell in Tyre, because Tyre was the crossroad. Everybody came to Tyre, whether it was going out to Italy, into Africa, you know, it, it, they would come to Tyre, and it was the trading center. And they boasted in, their, in themselves. They had great confidence of who they were or who they thought they were. And uh, verse 3, And by great waters the, the seed of Sihor, the harvest of the river and her revenue, for she is the mart of the nations. Sihor is a canal river off of the Nile in, the, in the Egypt. And so here we're saying Tarshish way off into the west, you were coming, Sidon to the north was coming, and Egypt with your goods were coming, and there's no tire to trade in. And uh, quite of an amazing thing, because we think about this. In the days of lack of communication, you know, if tire was to be destroyed in our day, we'd, we'd all know about it the day that it got destroyed. Okay, and you'd be, we'd be seeing eyewitness reports and films, for, you know, News at 11 film. In those days, Something could be gone for months before you would know that it was gone if you were away. You know, you're on a three-month trip to get to Tarshish and three months to get back. You're gone six months. You know, the whole city could have been long destroyed and you would have never known it. Yeah, where, where's the city? Uh, you know, and we think about this. It's, and it really wasn't so long ago before our, our own world was fairly small. I can remember growing up, my dad was in the Navy, and we would not hear from him for weeks at a time because they weren't at port. 
They were at sea. Yeah, there was radios, but those radios were not used for calling your kids at home. Uh, when you got back, you could call your kids from home, but my dad didn't have the money to call, make a call from, uh, from the Mediterranean or from, the, from uh, the Philippines or something. You know, so our world has gotten smaller. Today, people get in contact with their military people, you know, relatives all the time. You've you got uh, cell phones, short waves, you know, email, internet that are all connected and they're in constant contact with these guys. But in those days, it was a long time. And it reminds me, you know, I think about this a lot in, around here. What kind of hassles was it to travel? You know, I've shared with you, I've got a newspaper from Chloride from 1907, and it says that the pastor was going to Kingman to pick up his wife. He'd be gone for two weeks. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going, wow, you know, I make this trip every day virtually, and he was going to be gone two weeks to pick her up, get, get all her luggage and, and belongings and bring her back. It would take two weeks. He must have been riding a camel. Uh, probably riding a backboard, a uh, buckboard. He might have spent some time out there, but you also got to think, was it wasn't so long ago that there wasn't any major road. Yeah, they went up, they went, probably followed the stagecoach road up over the hill, which would have taken a day or two, as, you know, that we think of as so easy. But if you have your horse carrying a, a buckboard, dry on a buckboard, it's not going to be going very far. Then you had to come back down the other side. He had to load everything up. It would have taken three or four days to get there. Yeah. And he might have spent a couple of days with her, you know, in, enjoying it. But when the, when the buckboard was loaded, yeah. it's going to take longer to get home. Yeah. Now, they could have taken the train. The train only took six hours to get here from Kingman. Uh, but it was probably beyond his means to, yeah, to get, take the train. Uh, but, you know, I think about this oftentimes. Even as I drive back and forth and I look at the roads on the, the sides where the roads aren't, and go, what would it would been, what would have been like to ride a horse? I always think of here to Vegas. Oh, yeah, through those mountains. Yeah. And a river. Uh -huh. yeah, Yeah. But I've oftentimes thought about how long it took to go places in, in those days. And you know, even just a short time ago before our interstates, it was not a, you know, crossing country was not the two and a half day, three day trip that it was, that it is now on the interstates. It was a long, <laughs> treacherous road because the roads zigzag back and forth to every little town and you know, you'd go 20 miles on the map and you'd be driving for 80 miles to, <laughs> to get there. So, you know, this is, you know, they're, they're buying and selling us if they have some place to, to sell their stuff and it's not there. Um, and we, he's talked about Tarshish, he's talked about Zidon, and now he's talking about Egypt. And he says, hey, you brought your stuff, you, you got your harvest out of the river, you're you're bringing, you're bringing your fish and everything up to Tyre to sell. No Tyre. <laughs> verse, verse 4. Be you ashamed, O Zidon, for the f sea has spoken, even the strength of the sea, saying, I travail not, nor bring forth children, neither do I nourish up young men or bring up virgins. So God is saying, you're, Zidon, you're, you're the closest. You should know about this. And you're not even listening. And it says, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing here. That, that has not given any birth. 
there's no birth being given out by, by Zidon. And Zidon was a port city, major metropolitan. Says, I haven't brought, I haven't brought, I don't bring forth any children. I'm not nourishing up any young men, and, there, and I'm not raising up any virgins. In other words, nobody's there. It's been wiped out. And Nebuchadnezzar did put them under heavy tribute. Huh? Um, Tyre. And Zidon, because he conquered that whole area. But that's going to be future of Isaiah. We've got to remember, Isaiah is preaching some 200 years before Babylon and uh, before Assyria, Babylon, and the Medo Persian Empire comes to power. So when he's speaking to these people, uh, in this chapter, he's going to even tell us that the Chaldeans aren't even a people yet. Okay, they're not even, they don't even exist as far as a power, and yet they're going to be the one that conquers Babylon. And, uh, and I think he's kind of questioning God. God, do you know what you're talking about? You know, these, you're telling me the, these Chaldeans are going to pick up, you know, conquer, conquer them? You know, God, they don't even have cities yet. <laughs> they're just a nomadic people. And that's what they were when all these prophecies were being made. When Jeremiah said that Cyrus would rise up and send Israel back, you know, and he was Chaldean, it was like, okay, what's going on with Babylon? Babylon's our, our problem child right now. And in 70 years, this nomadic tribe is going to be the power of the earth and be able to take out Babylon. Uh, and, you know, we think about this sometimes. How often does God tell us things that when he tells us, they don't seem to make sense? You know, God, you know, what, you're, you're going to do what? You're, you're going to use who? <laughs> and God says, by my strength, I can, we can do everything. In Christ, I can, without Christ, I can do nothing. But in Christ, I can do all things. And we need to be really ready to understand that. If God tells us to do something, then God's going to give us the strength to do it. He will always equip those that he has called to get the job done. And if we try to do it on our own, and he hasn't called us, we won't get the job done because God's not going to let us get something done for his kingdom in the flesh. And so here we see this whole thing saying all this stuff is going on. Zidon's tire has been wiped out. Verse 5, As at the report concerning Egypt, so shall they be sorely pained at the report of Tyre. I think here that he's kind of pushing back to the ten plagues of, of Egypt when Egypt was destroyed and it made great news, Tyre's fall is going to make news. This is the financial headquarters of all the world and it's going to be destroyed. And he, I think here that he's reporting, you know, the report concerning Egypt, Egypt's been, Egypt's been wiped out and, the, Egyptian, and the, the Egyptians have lost their slaves and they're leaving and they've had their, and remember we've talked about this in Exodus during the 10 plagues, Egypt was virtually wiped out economically. The Nile was turned to, to blood, which killed all the fish. They couldn't transport on there. Darkness covered the face of the earth. The rains fell down at the wrong times. They turned to fire and burned everything down. The, the locusts killed everything. Half, you know, their animals died. The firstborn died. Uh, Pharaoh sends the army out after to get Israel, and they die uh, because God kills them in the Red Sea. Uh, so everything about Egypt, Egypt completely collapsed. And he says, as was that report concerning Egypt, so shall 
they'd be solely pained at the report of Tyre. All right, just as Egypt was destroyed, Tyre is going to be destroyed. And Egypt was not completely destroyed, it was just totally made helpless. And in history, we know that there was a point in time when there was a dynasty change, change because of how weak they, the pharaoh got. One of those times was probably when the people left Egypt and a new dynasty came in to take over and uh, conquered the people. And it says, uh, verse 6, pass over to Tarshish, how, O you inhabitants of the isle? So instead of coming to, instead of coming to Tyre, go back to Tarshish. Go, pass over, go to, go to Tarshish. Uh, and then he kind of taunts them. Is this your joyous city, whose antiquity is of ancient days? Her own feet shall carry her off to sojourn. You know, is this that joyous city, that, that city that was happy and joyful and, and proud? And, you know, who is an ancient city, tired, been around for a long time. And it says, her own feet shall carry her off to sojourn. And this is exactly what happened. Her pride and arrogance of Tyre led to them being partially destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and totally destroyed by uh, Alexander the Great. And both of them offered them the chance to surrender and, and would treat you nice because they didn't want to destroy a major economic hub. They wanted to take the taxes from it. They wanted to put it under their subjection. But they really didn't want to destroy it. And this is true of many nations when they go to battle. They don't usually want to destroy the enemy, the good things the enemy has. That's uh, why usually museums are off target, you know, off, you know, and national shrines are off, tar off, off the grid on battles. They try to avoid destroying the good parts of what, what they're taking. Because if you destroy it, you have to rebuild things. And if you get to keep them, there's, there's the pride of having this. And so many times in Middle East right now, they're having troubles with it because many of the Muslim world in their attacks are attacking holy shrines and everything and destroying churches and, and mosques and anything else that gets in their way. And that's not been done under civilized warfare because it's something that is sacred, you didn't attack it. If it was a museum, you didn't attack it. You, did, you tried to protect the cities as much as possible. And that's not happening then, and didn't happen during those attacks that, that people didn't bow to them. But they lost because their own pride put them in a place where they lost. Verse 8, who has taken counsel against Tyre, the crowning city whose merchants are princes, whose traffickers are honorable of the honorable of the earth? The Lord of hosts has proposed it to stain the pride of all glory and to bring to contempt all the honorable of the earth. So here he's going, who, who would dare attack Tyre? And this is kind of an idea that... Uh, happens in our own world. I, I kind of think of Switzerland. Switzerland has been neutral in all the big battles, and it's pretty much been left alone. Tyre pretty much was just a merchant city. You know, they would trade with anybody, but you know, they were kind of the, you know, we're just, we're just on our own. We're just here to trade, and we're not taking sides. And basically, they're saying, who, who would dare go against Tyre? And not that Tyre was a mighty army, didn't have a mighty army. They had enough to defend themselves. Uh, they had a large navy because they were a naval, you know, they had a 
merchants by sea mostly. So they had a protected navy, which you would call a navy in, by our days, and, and their tridents and their, their ships were very powerful, and they usually won at sea. Uh, they were powerful at sea. And, uh, and I said, you know, they're, it's a crowning city. It's, very, it's a crown jewel city. The merchants are very well off, and the, the traffickers, or again, the, the merchants, are honorable of the earth. Now, that's kind of an interesting statement to say about merchants, because not too many merchants in that day were usually considered honorable. A lot of people, just as they do in this day, consider them not so good because they buy things cheap and sell them at a higher price, and that kind of bothers a lot of people who, don't, who aren't smart enough to do it themselves in most cases. Because if you were smart enough, you'd do it. <laughs> and so that's a good statement on it, that they are honorable. And it says, the Lord of hosts has proposed it. You know, God has decided it. He's going to stain or pollute the pride of the glory, of all glory, and to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth, or to treat lightly. God had something against Tyre. And I don't know exactly what it was. It could just be literally their pride, the pride of their king. Like I said, in Ezekiel, he, he compares the king of Tyre to Satan, starts talking about how bad he is, and then goes into a, you know, statements of Satan. Uh, so the city of Tyre had to have been a pretty wicked city, and probably great adultery and idolatry and fornication, and that usually happens where there's great wealth and great money available, sin abounds usually in any city, sin abounds. And so Tyre has a wickedness, and God says, I'm going to take you out. And oftentimes he talked about Tyre. Tyre is talked about all through the scriptures. And so they, they have it. God has said, now is the time, just as he did with the promised land. The people of Israel had been away from the promised land for 430 years, and God says, their wickedness is now come to its completion. I want them all destroyed. And God is so patient. It amazes me at how patient God is because we get to, you know, I know I've learned to be a lot more patient, but I still lose my patience pretty quickly with a lot of things. And yet God spends centuries, centuries before he judges people. Uh, you know, like five minutes, five, you know, five seconds, you know, and you, you, you've taxed my, you taxed my last nerve. And God is going centuries with these people, over four centuries with the Canaanite people before he destroys them, several centuries for, the, for Tyre, uh, many centuries for lots of these different countries that have come in. Rome, you know, God was patient with them, trying to get them to come to him for almost three or four centuries. Uh, our own country, you know, we deserve a lot of punishment right now, and yet God is being patient with us, even though we're going straight downhill from our, from our start. And God is still patient. But when God says, I've had enough, you need to beware. But when God says, enough is enough, nothing stays his hand at that point. And Tyre is now going to start looking at this judgment. Even here, we're talking about a century later before he's going to finally take Tyre out the first time and another two centuries before he takes him out completely. 
And so we see this, God still has patience. Even when he brings judgment, the first judgments are usually light to just try to get us our good attention. Uh, does that in our lives. When he, when he starts to discipline, it's a light touch. Uh, pay attention. It's a slap on the wrist. You know, I want you to pay attention. That doesn't work. He goes a little harder. And if that doesn't work, he goes harder still until he might have to do very serious punishment to get us there. Uh, verse 11. Oops, 10. Pass through your lands as, as a river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given commandments over the merchant city and to destroy the strongholds thereof. So he says, you know, Egypt, you know, Tarshish rather, the land is like a river and it's just flown over. He goes, God has stretched his hand and he shook the city or shook the kingdoms. And literally shake here means to quake and disturb. And they're going to be conquered. And they're going to lose their, the majority of their buildings under Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, I'm going to destroy the strongholds. And they lost their, their mighty power, and that's when they decided to move out to the island. When Nebuchadnezzar was able to take them, they moved the whole city out to an island to try to protect themselves in the future. And they were paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar originally. Verse 12, and he said, There shall no more rejoice, O you oppressed virgin, daughter of Sidon. Arise, pass over to Chittim. There also shall you have no rest. And so go to the island. And this is kind of an interesting thing. Chittim is islands in the Mediterranean, so they moved to an island, just as they said they were going to do. And, uh, but there's no rest. They're not real. They're not restful there. They never are strong. Zidon is, again, it always talks about Zidon and Tyre frequently together. And in verse 13, this is where it starts getting interesting. Behold, the land of the Chaldean, this people were not till the Assyrians founded it for them to dwell in the wilderness. They set up towers thereof, they raised the palaces thereof, and he has brought it to ruin. The Chaldeans, a nobody. And really have not, the Assyrians are just starting to be a, a, a force during Isaiah's day. So this is very much a prophecy. The Chaldeans are going to rise up. And, you know, I can't even figure what, what, what it would be for us. Uh, the, the Chilean people rise up to be the world, world empire, you know. Uh, uh, I don't know what it might, I really don't know. Somebody that is so insignificant that you would say, this nation, these, these people are going to grow up to be an empire. And uh, they, pick, they pick the Chaldeans and they're going like, who are the Chaldeans? You know, they're, they're wanderers. They're just now starting to build cities. And, and God is saying, they're going to be raised up. And verse 14, how you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. And it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten 70 years according to the days of one king. After the end of 70 years shall Tyre sing as a harlot. Nebuchadnezzar just happened to reign for 70 years. Okay? He took him when he was a young, young, young man, and during his lifetime of right up till 70 years, give or take a couple of, couple of years, depending on what, he, what you say, that he conquered his people before he was king under his father. Uh, and that's what they usually do when they look at this. 
No. Well, I don't know if he's the longest one, but 70 years is a long time for a king, but you've also got to think many of these kings, people like Alexander the Great was a teenager when he was leading his army across Europe. 14, 15, 16, 17, something like that. He was, he was a teenager, and he was just such a brilliant leader that people followed him. And Nebuchadnezzar was under his father when he conquered this area, but might have been co-regent at that time as well. So he had years as a, as a king. And we look at somebody like uh, even George Washington in our history, you know, as a teenager, he's 15 years old, he's surveying the, the, the western parts of Virginia at age 18 or 19. He's the colonel of charge of, a, of an army brigade. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing, and, and I've said this before. In our day, we look at children, at teenagers, as if they should be just helpless children, and that is a very new phenomenon. Even as late as the 1800s and early 1900s, you know, teenagers were expected to pull their weight in the family. They were usually expected, if they weren't going on to college, they were expected to go get a job and help support the family. And what's very true in, these peri- in this period of time, you know, you, don't, you were not expected, even children in that day, you know, was expected to pull their weight in the family, get out and work on the farm or in the stables or whatever. They were not allowed to idle away their days just playing the whole time. And this is something that's very new for us anyway. But there have always been these places where luxury and wealth drives to laziness. That was happening in Egypt during their reign. They got rich and wealthy. And, and what ends up happening in, in all throughout civilization is as an empire or a nation gets wealthy and rich, people stop having children because they're so busy having fun. They quit paying attention to their defense. They're, they quit paying attention to their jobs, and they eventually fall. And it happened in Egypt. It happened in Assyria. It happened in Babylon. It happened in Medo-Persian empires. Uh, don't know that it happened in, with the Greek empire, because uh, Alexander the Great just got bored. He said, I've conquered the whole world, and he killed himself he had no more worlds to conquer. And he gave the nation to his three generals, to uh, four generals to split it all up. And then the Romans came along, and the Roman Empire had that same problem. As they got wealthy and they got lazy and ended up, if you read their newspapers, you know, read, read the history of Rome and read our newspapers today, you could never, you take out and switch the names, you'd never know, you'd never know the difference. And sin abounds. Uh, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, all forms of sexual deprivation reigns as those times because they're looking for something to make them feel alive. When they're raising up and working and struggling, they're knowing that they're alive because they're having to work and then they get to that point where you have to do things to try to feel alive. And much of our world is at that place right now. They have to do things to try to feel alive. And we're seeing the sexual sins running rampant. We're seeing alcoholism running rampant and drug use running rampant, violence running rampant because people are looking for some outlet to feel alive. And this is what happens. It's happened all through history that people get to a place where violence and sin reigns. And this is where they're at here. He says, you're, you're, you're gone. You know, from 70 years, you're going to be gone. Uh, 
And 70 years, they were under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, and then they slowly started taking away. And then it says, after the end of the seven days, 70 years, Tyre will sing as a harlot. Verse 16, take up the harp, go, among, go about the city, you harlot that has been forgotten. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. In other words, he's saying, go out and sing your, pra- you know, sing your praises, draw your customers back. And if you've ever been anywhere near places where harlots and prostitutes run, there almost is that constant singing out to, to come to them. Uh, the temptations that are on there. Only one time have I been anywhere near that, and, a, and it was just a bizarre, I was too young at the time to really care, but it was a bizarre place to be. Is it, they were singing out their call, and that's what he's saying here. Sing out your call to your customers. Draw them back to you. You've been gone for 70 years, at least it's a city, so 70 years isn't quite as bad as 70 years away as a person would be. But he says, they haven't changed. God judged them. They went away for 70 years, and they came back with the same attitudes. And, you know, this is a sad thing because so many of us do the same thing. God judges us. He puts it, gets, us, gets us our spanking behind the woodshed, and then we forget and go right back into the sin that he punished us for. And unless it's crucified, we'll continue to do that. When God crucifies our flesh, we can get away from it. Tyre is this example. God says, you've been a prostitute. You've been, you've been doing all these things wrong, and you're going to go right back to what you've done. And that is a sad statement, and yet we see it over and over in many people's lives. Uh, it's an amazing thing to see a drug abuser or an alcoholic give up their alcohol, and usually their family is just waiting for them to fall back because they've done it so many times and I've even heard it from a couple of people who really wanted to be successful. It just seems like my family's waiting for me to fail. And unfortunately, it's true. It failed so many times, they're waiting for them to fail, which then makes it a self-replicating problem because your family doesn't believe that you've changed. And if your family doesn't believe you're going to, you've changed, your own strength is only going to hold you out so long before you fall back into it. And then the family goes, see, we knew that was going to happen anyway. And we have this cycle that goes on, and both people are feeding into that cycle, and it happens all the time. And this happens even in the church. When somebody repents and comes, comes to church, and people look at them and say, well, you know, I know what you are. You know, you're that alcoholic. You're that drug user. You're the, the, the thief. You know, I don't believe that you've changed. And our very attitude of non-graciousness and forgiveness will drive them back into the sin that they were trying to come out of. And we see it over and over. And it doesn't even have to be somebody coming in from the outside. It could be a Christian you know, who's been into gossip or, or you know, some, some sin, and people go, well, you're just never going to change. We shortchange God so often when we look at one another and treat them in a way that God can't change them. And that's a challenge for us as Christians. And again, when I say that, I don't mean that, you know, if I have a thief walking through the door who says I've repented and come, you know, come, you know, and change my ways, does not mean I'm going to throw them the keys to the church and say, here, have a, you know, have free access to the church. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt saying, well, let's see if God has really changed you. Are you truly changed? Has God crucified your flesh and now you are a changed person? And then say, yes, here you go. 
you know, you may get the keys to the church at some point in time. But, you know, we need to be able to look at people with loving forgiveness. And Jesus said we're to forgive each other 70 times 7 times. And that wasn't 490 times and say, okay, that's it. 491st time, yep, no more. You know, he's basically saying just keep forgiving because that's who I am. And we look at, that's who God is. I don't even want to count how many times I've been forgiven of things. Uh, and, a lot, and the same thing in many cases. But God is so loving and forgiving and generous. You know, 400 years with people. You know, he was giving them a year, a year each time you know, to, to mess up. And you know they messed up a lot of times in each of those years. And God still forgave. And, but there does come a point where he says, no more. No more. Verse 16 says, take up the harp, go about the city, you harlot that has been forgotten, and make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. In other words, go out, let them all know that you're back, and you're ready to keep doing what you used to do. And God is saying that it will be remembered. And then we get this last portion, which gets us into a prophecy that is yet to come. Verse 17, and it shall come to pass after the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre, and she shall turn to her hire, and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. So this is, he's saying they're going to go back and be, be who they have been. And then this last verse makes a very strange twist. And her merchandise and her hire shall be holiness to the Lord, and it shall not be treasured nor laid up, for her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for durable clothing. This takes us probably to at least the millennial kingdom, if not the new heaven and new earth, where Tyre will still be around, and God says, okay, now your stuff is being used for me. It's going to be made holy, and you're not going to be sinning at this point. And this is something that we want to keep, always keep in mind. God does not say that money and wealth are bad and evil. Okay, there's people that misquote the, the verse in the New Testament. You know, they'll say money is the root of all evil, and that's not what the verse says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Making, there's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with getting wealthy. But if you love money and will do anything for money, then you've got a problem. And there are a lot of people who love the idea of money so much that they'll do anything to get it. Cheat anybody, you know, harm anybody. And we have lots of movies based on this, how the, the rich guy is buying up the, you know, the neighborhood so he can build his great big, you know, whatever it might be he's going to build, and he cheats the people out of their out of their homes and drives them out of their homes. That's the love of money. I want to get this because I want to make more. That's where Tyre was. Tyre was in love with their money. They were willing to do anything it was to make, to make their money. And God says, there's going to come this time when you're going to, you're going to be profitable, Tyre. You're still, going to be, you're still going to be a merchant city, but you're going to be doing it for me. There's a switch. Before he says you're going back to be, verse 17 really belongs with 15, 16, and 17. You, you're, at the end of your 70 years, you're going to go back to your, back to your vomit, back to your bad, bad nature, back to your habit, even though you put a paragraph mark in the wrong place as far as I'm concerned. Nothing done in that way is going to be honorable to God. 
And this is very important because there's lots of people who will say, well, the ends justify the means. God, I made all this money and I'm giving a bunch of it to you. I'm giving you 50, 80%, God, and I'm keeping the rest, but God, I, and God's going, well, you didn't get it the way I want it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. When Jesus was watching in the temple with the people giving their gifts, and he goes, all these rich people put in lots and lots of money. And he goes, they gave out of their abundance. And he said, the widow gave all that she had. You know, and I've always wondered what the rest of the story was. You know, people talk about all the people they want to go talk to in heaven. I want to go talk to the widow. Yeah. I really do. I want to talk to her and say, what happened? What happened after you gave that money that Jesus talked about? They never tell anything about it. You know, so he just says she's, given, she's trusted God and given all that she has. And I don't believe she went out that night and died of hunger because she gave God her gift. It just doesn't make sense. I think God did something miraculous for her. I would just like to know what it was. It's curious. You know, she's the type of person I want to you know, go check out. You know, I'll go see David and all of them you know, 20 or 30 centuries later when the lines have died down. You know, it's kind of being facetious there, but you know, you know what I'm saying. I'd like to talk to some of these people that are the minor characters. What happened to you after this great miracle? How did it change your life? Because I'm always kind of interested in how do people's lives change when God steps in? And you know, some of these people are very famous. We know how their lives changed. You know, we know how uh, Peter and Paul and you know, they were famous enough that there's all kinds of books written about them. But I am kind of interested in how some of these other people, what happened? Cyrus, your daughter got, got healed. What did, you, what did you do? What happened in your life? How did it really change your life when that happened? Or did you go back to just being a uh, rough, rough, abusive Roman centurion? You know, what actually happened in your life? God knows what he's doing when he doesn't give us the blessings we think we want. And I've said it so many times. I have seen people who got greatly blessed by God and then disappeared because they were so busy using their stuff. And I understand it, which tells me that God is not ready to bless most of us because we wouldn't use it right. If we would just say, God, I want to teach me. You know, I think about George Mueller spending 10,000 pounds a month for these orphans at a time when 10,000 pounds was pretty much equivalent to being a millionaire. You were you were set for life. If you had $10,000 pounds in the bank, you were set for life. And he had none that belonged to him. He just spent all of that money on missionaries and the, the orphans. You know, you figure that he was going through 120 pounds a year. That was a fortune. There was nobody that had that kind of money, and yet God let him deal with it because he knew that he could trust him to deal with it. And we look at people like Sears and, and Roebuck. We look at J.C. Penney. We look at the founder of Caterpillar Company who all decided, God, I'm, I want to put you first in my company and I'm going to give you 90% and I'm going to keep 10. And they ended up being millionaires, which means a lot of money went to missions work. And God is looking, what are you going to do with the stuff I give you? Are you using it all on your stuff? And there's nothing wrong with using some of it on ourselves. It's nothing, if you have enough money, there's nothing wrong with getting a nice car or a nice house or nice furniture, nice clothes. But if all that stuff comes first and God is put on the back burner, God, I'll give you leftovers. There's a lot of, a lot of leftover here, God. I'll give, you, I'll give you the leftovers. And God's going to say, no, that's not what I gave it to you for. 
And this is something that's important for him. God asks us to be respectful stewards of his money. And the Bible is very clear. He asks for 10% back as mandatory. And I really, truly, in my heart, believe that when we give our offerings and our tithes and offering, until we're over the 10%, God is not impressed in any way, shape, or form. He'll never be fully impressed, but I'm, what I'm saying, he goes, okay, you gave, me what, you gave me what I asked for. Thank you. Oh, you're up to 20, 30%? Oh, yeah, I like that. You're, you're trusting me. And that's where the gifts start really coming in when he says, you are honoring me. You're trusting me. And that's where it comes down to. Most people won't even tithe because they don't trust God. And then they don't give offerings because they don't trust God to give the tithe. And I would never tell people to go throw it away. I have my 401k. I have a savings account. I have money for the future. But I also give God a significant portion of what I get. And God promises us that when we give it to him, he's going to return it. Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with all your substance, with the first fruit of all your increases. So shall your barns be filled with plenty, and the oppressors shall burst forth with new wine. God makes a promise that he's going to take care of us when we honor him. When he looked around at the disciples and said, are you going to uh, you know, leave me? And, and Peter says, we have left fathers and mothers and family. And Jesus told him, no, you haven't. You're going to get all of that and then some. Uh, you know, we don't give up anything when we follow God. We get more. You God, I, I gave up my family of drunks and, and bums, and you gave me a family of people that are at least trying to follow you mostly. Yeah. You know, look at all the fathers and mothers. I've got people who now care for me as if I was their own kid. You know, they, they look at me and say, I'm gonna, I want to help you. Or we get all kinds of brothers and sisters that are just loving one another. And, and Are they perfect? Absolutely not, but no family is. But, you know, you trade one family of rotten sinners for a family of righteous people, and it's a wonderful experience. And that's one thing I love about being able to travel as a Christian. You go to the church, and it's just like, I'm home. I'm with other people, especially if it's a good Christian church. You know, wow, the same God is here. The same Spirit is here. The people are pretty much the same. The message is... Maybe not the same message on there, but it was a good message. God, God inspired it. And you get to just enjoy being with family wherever you go. Anywhere in the world you go, there's family to go meet. And this is the wonderful thing about God. When we give things to God, he returns it to us. Pressed down, shaken together. It might not always be money and wealth, but it could just be peace and comfort and you know, that wonderful, just right place. And God says, you've given to me, I'm going to give back to you. It says very often, you can't outgive God. And I really believe that. You can't outgive God. No matter how much you give him, he ends up giving back. It's all his anyway. And like I said, we look at some of these very rich people that gave to God 90%. It kind of been hard at various times saying, God, you said 90%. Uh, don't know how I'm going to get by when I give this to you. And I've been there. I'm the percentage that God has me giving, there's times I look at it and say, wow, God, this is an awful hard gift to give because I've got some bills coming due and the bills get paid because I give him what he and I have agreed to, to give. And there may come a time when he says, okay, you need to raise that. But I also truly believe he can't outgive God. So if he wants me to give more, I'll give it and he will meet the needs. 
when I was walking by faith before I got the job out of the prison. That was a kind of a fun time, but it was nerve-wracking at times, saying, God, and I actually told God, God, I've got all these bills that are due. I had a very large budget because I had a pretty good job before I lost that job. And I'm going, God, when you don't meet these bills, then I'm going to go get a job that can meet the bills. But God always met the bills, always. And I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to stop being a pastor. But it's God, you know, until you give me a job, <laughs> these are yours. I'll pay what I can <laughs> with what the church pays me, <laughs> and you provide the rest. It's been, it was amazing at all the times and the ways that God would meet bills. I'd get somebody calling me up saying they needed a computer job. I'd find somebody call up and say, you know, they needed manual labor that I could do. And then, so I would go out and do manual labor. I'd get a check in the mailbox. Uh, somebody would just walk up to me that knew me from, from various churches and say, God told me to give you this. And, you know, most of the time it was hard work. I had to go out and do some hard work. But God provided always. And this is the good news. God provides for his children. He'll meet our needs. And then some. I feel blessed because I get a pretty good income out of it. And I can give a pretty nice gift to the church each, each month from, from the job. So, God, if that's how you want to provide for me, wonderful. Looking forward to the day that I don't have to work out of the prison. I can be at the church all the time. And I can, well, not at the church, but here in Chloride and visit people and talk to people. I miss going up to the, to the post office and talking to people because that's where everybody goes at some point during the day around here, walking around, talking to people. I don't get to do that because I have, a, I have another job I have to do. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to guide and lead us. Lord, teach us to trust in you. Teach us to be confident and, and obedient to you. And we just thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.